Welcome to the Global CISO Forum, the podcast for information security executives. Welcome to the Global CISO Forum podcast. I'm your host, Amber Pedrincelli. With me today is Michael F.D. Anaya. He is the head of global cyber investigations and government relations at DevCon. But more importantly, he is a speaker at Hacker Halted, our upcoming cybersecurity conference next year, next year, next month in Atlanta, Georgia. Welcome to the show, Michael. Hey, happy to be here. Thank you for having me on. Absolutely. Thanks for being on. And, um, I kind of do wish it was next year, but uh, our conference is coming up <laughs> next month, and we're so so excited to have you on stage. Um, remind me, which track are you in? Do you remember? Uh, I'm in the awesome track. The awesome track. Okay. Uh, that, uh, yeah, whatever that one is. I think it's track <laughs> one. I don't even know. I'm making things up at this point. One or two. All right. What is your your track or what's your your talk title? So my talk title is the um, the dark side of of ad tech, the criminal mind. Ooh, the criminal mind. That's, that's what I'll be talking about. Exactly. I love um, it. It's fascinating because it's it's one of those things that I dealt with a lot, and um, it never really dawned on me actually when I was in the FBI that what I'm doing is really building a repository of understanding how the criminal thinks and the mindset behind the actor, but. It, it, it came later, so to say. It just became sort of second nature. Like when I hear people and I talk to people, I can start picking apart uh, certain traits of people when they're not being honest, or I start to understand on a subconscious level in a way. Anyway, it's just, I think, years of training. Wow. So you were in the FBI. Let's talk about how you got um, into cybersecurity. Were you doing cybersecurity for the FD- FBI, or can you talk about it? Uh, I cannot talk about anything. Just kidding. Uh, <laughs> that'd be so awesome if I, could, if, I, if I could literally say that I can't talk about it, I'll kill you, right? Right. I'll have to kill you. That's how it goes in movies. Mm-hmm. Um, so, no, no, I can, I can talk about a lot of things. I can't talk about anything that was classified. When you leave the FBI, you sign pretty much this waiver that says they will prosecute you <laughs> if you disclose classified information. All right. So, but there's a lot of stuff I dealt with that was unclassified or not classified. It's confidential, but it's been since. Uh, listed the veil because some of the stuff I dealt with was in the criminal realm and it was adjudicated, meaning it had gone to trial or the person fled out. Mm-hmm. And so now it's kind of open for public consumption. So I can definitely talk about a lot of what I did. So were you doing cybersecurity back then or, or did you find your way to cybersecurity later? No. So, yeah. So prior to FBI, I was doing software development. Okay. And then um, I transitioned into the FBI and during that time there, they started me off working on the cyber criminal squad, specifically specializing in network data breaches. And I did that for about eight years in Los Angeles, California. That was my first office. Hmm. And then after that point, I transitioned to another position of promotion at the headquarters where I did leadership development. I wanted to take a break from cybercrime. And then I got another promotion and I was selected to become a supervisor for one of the cyber squads out in, Mon- in I'm sorry, in Atlanta, Georgia, which is where I'm at now. So I did that for about four years. So I was running point on a cyber squad. Uh, it was a phenomenal experience my entire time at FBI. About 14 years. Uh, it was really eye-opening. I really enjoyed my time. Uh, it was just it was fun. It was fun for me. Yeah, it sounds really varied. So you got your cyber stuff, you got your leadership development, which I think a lot of people in cybersecurity definitely don't get. Um, 
And you sounds like you got a lot of psychology in there as well. It sounds like a great tenure. I didn't. It was. It was fantastic. A lot of the psychology just came from hands-on experience. Um, mm-hmm. And again, at the time, I didn't necessarily realize what I was doing, but I was interacting with you know individuals who decided to take a different path in their lives mm-hmm. or make a poor decision or whatever it may be. And I was interviewing them. I was interrogating them. I was connecting with them. One of my skills really um, I learned to hone in and cultivate was really relating to people. And to make you a really good agent or just an individual in general and do it with people, the ability to connect. And so whenever I was talking with a subject, that's what I was doing. I was connecting with them. There's a story I'll share with you that kind of talks about it a little bit to some degree. Um, I, this, this case happened to be, this was an individual who was a hacker. He was targeting um, various uh, interests out in Los Angeles. In this instance, he was going after some of the studios and taking their intellectual property and posting online. And in this instance, we identified him. We did an interrogation. It was me with a Secret Service agent. The Secret Service agent and I have never worked together. It just so happened that our cases crossed paths. And so we deconflicted and we decided what we'll do is we'll do a subject interrogation. So again, we never worked together. We interrogate the subject. And interrogation is just kind of like a more uh, fancy, I don't know what's fancy, <laughs> but it's really the more invasive way of saying interview, mm-hmm. especially with an interview. And the interview took probably about four hours during the course of which we took a break, about three hours into it. Mm-hmm. And the secret service agent comes up to me and he says, hey, you know, I found it interesting when you're talking to the subject, you're really connecting with them, aren't you? And I was, was never really faced with this type of question or statement. I'm like, well, yeah. And he goes, no, 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 you're not, you're not feigning understanding. You truly are empathizing with them. Like, you're really kind of emotionally connecting with them. Hmm. I'm like, oh, yeah, I, I am. And he's like, that's got to be draining. And it's the first time it dawned on me. It, and it is. It's very draining if you do this because you do take on that other person's feelings and emotions. And if done well, it really builds our rapport. And in this instance, this person decided to confess. And that's rare to get. A lot of times in TV shows or movies, that happens. But it's really for film or for cinema. It makes a good story. But in reality, a lot of times they ask for an attorney. Uh, or they don't say anything. Mm-hmm. So being able to really build that relationship is tough. And so for me, it was something I was able to cultivate. And so I share that story because it was one of those things that as an investigator, you learn to do. Not everyone does it well. Uh, some people are more skilled at it than others. But if you can do it really well, you can unlock a lot of what the human psyche sort of has behind itself. So that's what I was able to do. And that's really what helped me sort of build that foundation of understanding how the criminal thinks. So how do you apply that to cybersecurity? Like, does that give you an edge, you think, in uh, your cyber investigations? Um, it did to some degree. I was working with um, another agent at the time who was really kind of formulating uh, a larger plan to sort of be predictive, more behavior analytics. And so he and I kind of touched upon this a little bit. He was really trying to take it to the next level. He actually went on to work in the FBI's behavior um, analysis unit hmm. where he's refining that. Um, it helped me just to be able to really connect and understand the motivation. Mm-hmm. So one of the direct benefits would have been when I interacted with them 
face-to-face. That's what really helped me. It also helped just understanding that many times, so there's, there's always exceptions. The exception is, again, typically what you see in the movies or television show, someone who's a psychopath. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's a very different than what I'm referring to. The vast majority of people I've interacted with were just like us. Mm-hmm. They just made a bad decision. And there's a few things, and I kind of talk about it at the dark side of AdTech, not a presentation I'm going to give, but I'll, I'll give you a preview. Mm-hmm. Some of those commonalities or things that begin to happen is that you make a poor decision one time, and like you and I both have made bad decisions, right? Mm-hmm. You probably can reflect on, yeah, I made a bad decision. And typically when you know it's bad, I'm using air quotes in case you can't tell. Yeah. <laughs> uh, when you know it's a bad decision, um, you know you feel bad. You feel like, I should have done that. Whatever it may be. Whether it's cheating or whether it's not being honest or whatever, whatever, whatever it has, whatever it may be. Then all of a sudden, if you continue to do it, it doesn't feel as bad the second, third, or fourth time. And then that's what I begin to realize that a lot of these individuals who I was dealing with, especially in the cyber arena, many times they don't necessarily think what they're doing is that bad. A lot of these people who are hackers start in the gaming environment. And they're just playing a game. And someone frustrates them. So they feel a sense of righteousness. They feel a sense of, well, hey, I'm justified in doing this. And it's just a game. Who cares? doesn't matter. And they're doing something that's wrong. And they know it's wrong. And they feel that. But again, it's a game. Who's really affected when you DDoS or do a distributed in-house service on someone else's game server? So that person's taken offline for a little bit. No real foul. And it becomes common in that culture. And these are key components that, work, that sort of build that criminality I'm referring to. You feel a sense of righteousness for doing what you're doing. The environment is as such that it allows you to operate without, without punishment. So you feel a sense of impunity. Mm-hmm. And then you continue that behavior. And that duration is really what makes it gravitate in terms of our people who are criminally focused or criminally minded. It's that prolonged exposure. So you go look back to yourself and you think about what decisions I made in the past. If you've ever made something you've done something wrong, you continue to do it. It's easier the 100th time. Mm-hmm. And if the environment is such that attitude is cultivated and encouraged, it's even easier. So a lot of the people I would interview or interrogate, that those common threads are coming up. They made a bad decision. They felt bad, but they felt a sense of uh, justification. The environment didn't correct it. And it continued to operate and became normal and became their day-to-day life. It just became normal for them. And those are some of the things that I've learned. And I think a lot of us can relate, but generally speaking, one of those factors is in play for us. We make a bad decision. Someone tells us, hey, that's a bad decision. You're right. I shouldn't have done it. And that's where that environmental component comes in. Mm-hmm. So then that exposure to that way of thinking or that action isn't prolonged. It's short-term and it's over. And now you go back on the path that you're air quotes again supposed to be on right this is so interesting i don't (laughs) to go off on a tangent here i don't know if you listen to the podcast reply all i have not okay it's really good it's it's all about technology and and they do a lot of cybersecurity stuff um but the last episode they it was actually a rerun that they played they tracked down a hacker which took a really long time um basically all he had done is taken over someone's snapchat account but they tracked him down and explained all the bad things that happened to the person whose account was taken over. And they were like, wow, I just didn't, 
I never thought of that. I didn't know that there was really another person on the end of this. And um, yeah, they were just young guys and none of them, they were just like, oh, I just, I do that and then I sell them and I make money and then someone else resells the account. And it was just so interesting Then they finally were confronted with the person who they had hurt. They, like one guy actually had a total change of heart. And at first he was acting really arrogant and didn't want to admit any fault. And then he actually called them back the next day and was like, look, I feel terrible about how I talked to you and how I was so flippant about this. I understand that this had real ramifications for you in your life and I feel awful and I'm not going to do this anymore. And it was just so interesting because you think, I mean, people are hacked constantly and I'm sure like you're saying, it's the environment. There's no consequence really for them and they don't see the negative impact or they don't think about it. And when they do, they're just like us. They're, they're regular people who have you know, a heart and they feel bad for what they've done. They just have to be shown. And of course, this isn't a (laughs) solution that would work for anything, um, you know, at scale. But it was interesting to see kind of a glimpse into the psychology of just like a low level hacker even. Um, So yeah, that aligns perfectly to what you were saying. And you know, while you're talking about that, that plays out in a lot of criminality. Um, Mm -hmm. And you brought up so many good points. One, the victimless element to the hacks perspective, because they don't see the victim. Like, if you're robbing a bank and you're seeing someone terrified in front of you, you see it. It's very real. When you've compromised someone's data and you have access to it and that person feels a sense of loss or, or victimization, you don't ever see that as a hacker. They don't mm-hmm. see that interaction. So if you're describing that show, they showed them, hey, this is the face and the reality of what you did, and then they're faced with that consequence. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's very fascinating. Um, the other component that is, is really kind of interesting um, with hackers and how they think and, and kind of why they do what they do, it depends on their perspective. And right now we've only talked about criminal hackers. But if you look at a nation state actor, their motivation is very different. Mm-hmm. Their feeling of right and wrong is very different. When they're operating at the behest of a nation state, that is their job. They are empowered to do so by their government. The morality is actually the opposite. They don't see what they're doing as wrong because in their world, it's right, if that makes sense. So like in the United States, whenever you have like um, another government entity that would basically is in charge, so the FBI wasn't in charge of this, but uh, other government agencies are where they potentially do offensive measures. Uh, this would be something that the NSA would be more inclined to do. That person who works with the NSA is empowered to do that. When they're put on a red team, or the team that is basically going to be doing the attack, they're the ones that I know what I'm doing, and they're, and they're aware of it, and they're empowered to do so, and they go home and they feel like, oh, I did a good job helping the country. Right. The offside is true as well when you're looking at a Chinese actor, a Russian actor, or a North Korean actor, or whomever. They have that same sense of righteousness that they're doing right by the country. Mm-hmm. So that's one of the things that also comes into play when you're looking at uh, the motivation element. If you're dealing with a criminal actor, the one we're talking about initially, what we talked about before, placing. However, if you're dealing with someone else, their perspective is vastly different. And what we perceive to be wrong, they perceive to be right. That, that I learned is really fascinating. And we don't think about that, right? It's complicated. And we, I think, as Americans, sometimes feel as if we do everything right. We're the good guys. I'm using air quotes again. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> but in their world, we're not necessarily the good guys. I need something for us to be mindful. 
Yeah. That's a really good point. It's a whole different thing if it's a nation state because, right, that's your job. That's your boss. That's what you believe in. So that's a, that's a, that's exactly. a tricky one. Is any of that going to come up in your talk? Not the nation state stuff. Okay. Um, I might mention it, but most of the stuff I'm going to be talking about is just the criminal. Uh, it's just one of the things I wanted to sort of present to you and, and you know, your listeners, that it is complex and it isn't that simple whenever people think about it, it's, it, it becomes a little more convoluted and um, it takes some time to sort of sift through and understand. It, it helps you to some degree if you're doing an investigation, um, if you can kind of pick and choose. Like if you know you're dealing with a, a nation-state actor, um, there's a different ramification associated with that type of breach versus a criminal hacker. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's the only reason why I would ever bring that up is if that was ever something that needed to be discussed. But ultimately, for my presentation, it's really just going to be focused on criminal mind. That's so cool. And so, yeah, obviously you're on our, um, our social hacking uh, track, the um, Ahoy Matey track to go with our pirate theme at Hacker Halted this year. So, um, yeah, you'll be talking all about, uh, you know, w- with the other people on that track talking about the, the social side of hacking. So that's very cool. Um, and obviously psychology is a huge part of that, and I'm really glad that we have that represented this year. Um, what do you see – Okay, I have a couple questions. So you you mentioned leadership development during your time. Um, it's your previous job. And this is a podcast primarily for executives, so CISOs. Um, what, do you, what, what do you think you learned during your time in leadership development that, that CISOs need to pay more attention to, if anything? So I, don't, I think this is just general rule. This, I mean, it's applicable for a CISO, but it's also applicable for people in general. And this is something that isn't earth-shattering. But really what it comes down to is employing the right people and empowering them. That was something that just became very evident time and time again um, when I was with the Leadership Development Program or just watching these people. And even now in the private sector, I see it. When you have the right leader in play, he or she can then empower that team. And that is really a force multiplier. So when I chatted with some CISOs, and the best ones are the ones who really can lead people and motivate them. Many times those aren't the most technical people. Many times they're not the individual who has all the various certifications, but they're an individual who understands people, can relate with them, and then knows how to motivate them. If you can motivate a team and you can manage them, that is really the secret, I think, when it comes to managing mostly anything, including cybersecurity. When I chatted with some of the CISOs, I was back up a little bit. I, was, I, I had a unique position when I was with the FBI prior to leaving. The FBI has something for your listeners that if they're interested in, they should reach out to a local FBI office. But it's called the CISO Academy. Oh. And it's an opportunity that the FBI affords CISOs to go to the FBI Academy for about a week. Uh, they arrive on Monday typically, and there's a, there's a, there's a meal there on Monday night. And it's planned every moment of your day is planned. But you're literally there at the FBI Academy. You sleep at the FBI Academy. You're getting training at the FBI Academy. You have FBI agents like myself. We were ambassadors. So I'll be able to connect with them, relate with them, um, and listen to them and hear some of their concerns. But anyway, so then you can see this FBI Academy. At the end of it, you, um, you go to firearms. So you actually can get firearms training from an FBI-certified firearms instructor. It's, it's Honestly, it's a really great event. I, I'm no longer with the FBI, but I would encourage your your listeners to completely apply for this. It, every system I've ever spoken to loves it. Uh, so anyway, 
I was there, I was able to connect with them. Uh, there's a bar on the FBI counter, believe it or not. So we spend a lot of time there at, yeah, at the end of the day. And so they share a lot. During the course of which, the ones that I felt like were probably the most impactful were the ones that I described before. They were good leaders, and they can motivate their team. Um, the ones that had a hard time were the ones that were, you know, uh, traditional, very technical, had all certifications, but just couldn't relate with people. Um, so I think that's one of the things that kind of came out of my time. That there's a development program, and I think it's applicable for anyone who's listening, really trying to connect with people on your team, empowering them to do uh, what they're capable of doing, and that unlocks. It's a force multiplier. That's amazing. I had no idea that program existed. And as much as I don't like to send our, our listeners anywhere but EC Council for training, I think that is <laughs> um, an amazing uh, program. And I would uh, really encourage anybody to, to take that. That sounds like a great thing to do. Um, it, you know, it's, kind of, it's kind of funny. It, people ask me like, when I left, what do, you, what do you miss most? I miss most Canada people, the FBI, phenomenal people who work there, just phenomenal. Um, but I miss that CISO Academy. That was so much fun. It was so, you know, it's funny because, you know, I was, when I was brand new, the FBI, everything's new. I'm super excited to be there, right? My exposure prior to that was uh, a bunch of, uh, it was back in El Paso, Texas. I happened to go to a Golden Crow and a SWAT team, a SWAT team walks in. And me and the people I'm with, a, a bunch of high school kids were high school at the time, we're just gawking at these FBI guys. So we're in black, it says FBI SWAT. We didn't know anything about the FBI, but that was like our impression. We were so enamored with them. Yeah. So fast forward, um, I go to the FBI Academy. It's a magical experience, right? And then after being there for so long, it becomes normal. Kind of got to subscribe before regarding the criminal mind. It just becomes kind of like, ah, it's just there, just random, like, your academy, there are little explosions going off in the background. You have HRT, hostage rescue team, they train out of there. They're literally flying helicopters, propelling from them. You can see this in the distance. It became normal. But when you're there with the, you know, chief of rank security officers, they're watching for the first time. They're super excited. It's sort of like seeing your kids on Christmas. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, it's really neat. And so... I missed that moment of like that first time I was like, Oh my God. And you got me more excited. So anyway, it's a really good opportunity. If you're afforded that opportunity, I encourage you to take it. I know, you know, chief and security officers are really busy mm-hmm. and they have a lot to, to deal with, but if they could find time to take a week, um, out of their out of the month to do that, I encourage it. It's awesome. Wow. I, I, let's link to that in the show notes. Um, so people can find more information. That sounds great. So you have such a different perspective than my normal guests on this show. What do, do you have any concerns? Like, what do you think the cybersecurity community needs to be paying more attention to right now that maybe they're not? So there's a few things that I've seen. Um, so there's like three that I think of that I, I think people should sort of be mindful of. Uh, one thing is sort of, again, on the criminal component. I've been to a lot of events. Like, I've spoken at probably over 500 events. I've listened to thousands of presenters. Um, and they're all most in the cybersecurity arena. One of the big issues I see is the focus is on defense, but not collaboration with those who can directly address the threat. So, it can be an analogy. Um, let's say you're new to neighborhood, and you and your family are excited to live in your new home located right at the heart of the neighborhood. And you're looking forward to all those experiences. 
one of the experiments likely is not a break-in, but if you were to be aware of a series of break-ins and they started at the outer edges, but no one reported them, not even on next door, law enforcement, law enforcement was never alerted to the activity, then what would happen? The threat would escalate, undeterred the actors who continue to make their way to the center neighborhood, hitting home after home until they arrived at their home. And that's kind of like an alarming thought, but that analogy mirrors many times what happens in the corporate landscape when companies don't share information on data breaches or indicators of compromise or theft of intellectual property with the appropriate authorities. Those are the things that I've seen that I really think need to be brought to light. Because if you think about that analogy, again, if no one says anything to law enforcement, law enforcement is not capable of taking action on the threat actor. And the threat actor continues to operate with impunity. Mm-hmm. Um, I think many times corporations think, oh, well, I'm sure they know. And I, I hate to break the news to everyone. Many times they don't know. It requires people to share information. Again, just like that neighborhood. Mm-hmm. If you think about it, you have someone walking around a neighborhood and they look suspicious, you need to call the police and let them know so they can start taking note of that information. And in some ways to do this, you can hire former law enforcement. That's a great way of doing it. Um, you can take advantage of some of those outreach efforts, like I mentioned before, and then also just build an ongoing relationship with law enforcement. Those are three things you can do. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing I see that I think people should be aware of is the organizational gap. I mean, it's something that happened in the Bureau. It's very common for large organizations, but it's devastating when it comes to cybersecurity. And what I mean by the organizational gap is where you have, you know, a particular unit, like org unit, we'll say a marketing unit, and they're not honed in with a security unit. Security needs to be interwoven throughout the company. And I think a lot of your listeners are going to be aware of this, but the executives need to empower the CIO or the CISO with the needed resources to address the issue. Um, the idea is to delegate to a person or a team this an actual endeavor. And they can serve as a liaison to the organizational units, helping translate the security concerns to their pro personnel while getting a deeper understanding of that unit's operational needs. It's really just translating that. I see it a lot now. I'm in the private sector now. Current company I'm with, that organizational gap is, becomes a problem, again, from the security perspective. Like, for example, if you had a company that has a website, there's a high probability that website is run by an app team or the website team. They might not even integrate with the security component, or that might be outsourced to a third party. Mm-hmm. And so security isn't necessarily the forefront of mind. If something happens, like in 2018, you have some big data breaches, some of them like Ticketmaster or British Airways. When those breaches occur, they weren't prepared. They weren't aware of the vulnerabilities and the threats. And many times, because the security team wasn't aware of what's happening. So it's just that for cybersecurity purposes, that, you know, that, that security component needs to be interwoven. So that was something. And then the final thing I've noticed that I think people should be aware of is just that, simply put, their supply chain is a huge blind spot. So this is the blending in worlds, private and public sector here with this analysis. When it comes to cloud computing, it's, it's prominent. And I understand the need to shift to the cloud for the cost-benefit element. That's huge. Plus, I know there's an enhanced security thought process there because ultimately you feel like, well, that particular cloud provider, they have, to, they have a whole security team dedicated to ensuring that data is protected. The issue that I see 
starting to percolate is you use a vendor. And we'll say in this hypothetical that vendor is located in India. Mm-hmm. And you know, okay, well, there's not a problem there. But you're, you don't know where that vendor is going to house your customer data. Hypothetically, that vendor will house your customer data in the cloud, but they're to use like um, Alibaba Cloud, which is a Chinese company, to host the data. Now, all of a sudden, your customer's data is sitting in China, which for some of your listeners might not be a concern, but for me, coming from the government, having optics into a lot of sensitive and class information, that's definitely a concern. And even if you look at open like, internet research, you can find the fact that Chinese do not have the same civil liberties that Americans have. So that data is going to be open to intercept. It's not something companies are thinking about, especially when you're running an e-commerce platform. You're not necessarily thinking about that risk that I just described. They're probably like, wait, what? You're focused on, you know, is your website up? Is it operational? So that digital supply chain is really huge, and there's a lot of ramifications associated with it that haven't yet come to surface. Sometimes they have, but it's those type of things that I think people should be concerned about. That is immensely complicated, and <laughs> that's, I think, why particularly the job of the CISO is just kind of incredible that it's that it's under one person. Um, so, yeah, those are... Those are some concerning concerns. Thank you for bringing them up. Um, <laughs> I'm, I hope I made everyone's day wonderful. Yeah. Like, Thank you for telling us that wonderful information. <laughs> giving us so much more to worry about. Uh, but, you know, the thing is, it, it should be digestible. It should be one of those things that I agree with you. There needs to be a team effort. Besides organizations that dictate how many people are going to be there, I do feel like the sisters should be empowered mm-hmm. to do more than many times I believe they're given power to do. Obviously, I say obviously, this might not be obvious to everyone, but many times the system doesn't actually um, report directly to the CEO or the board. They report to someone else. Mm-hmm. Um, one thought would be to the board to allow the CISO to report directly to them. And that shows that security is paramount and really a concern for the organization. Agreed. And then allow that person to have the team they need so they can empower them to really protect the, you know, that company's intellectual property as well as the customers. Absolutely. Yeah, I think that's, you know, a well, well-recognized problem with the CISO role and with cybersecurity, especially when they report up through the CIO. That can really be uh, difficult. Um, but thank you so much for taking your time to come and talk to us today. I cannot wait to see your talk next month in Atlanta um, at Hacker Halted. Uh, do you happen to know your registration code for any listeners who want to register to attend Hacker Halted offhand? If not, we can put it in the show I notes. I do not. Okay. <laughs> show note it. Show note it. I have it. no idea what it is. Our yeah, show notes are going to I didn't even know I had a registration code. You do. That is for you to invite your network and anyone who um, is interested in hearing your talk in particular. So um, I have to say, so I organize the Hacker Halted and Global CISO Forum, but I am going to do my best to find a way to, to be in the room for at least part of your talk because uh, I'm really interested in hearing the whole thing, not just this teaser version. Um And again, thank you for being a speaker. Thanks for coming on to the podcast. And we look forward to seeing you on stage in Atlanta. Well, again, I appreciate the opportunity to share my thoughts with you and your listeners. And I'm excited to be there in Atlanta to share everything with everyone that's attending. Awesome. Thanks, Michael. Thank you for tuning in to another edition of the Global CISO Forum, the podcast for information security executives.